Uh, we're working our way on through the season of foundations. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today, so if you want to find that in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we followed Saul and his struggles, his poor choices. We've watched David try to make the right decision and struggle last week. We had that challenge of bringing God back home. He was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And, and when we pick up the text today in chapter 7, this is immediately following last week's text. David's established. He's got a capital city. He's got a palace. He's got rest from his enemies. And so he decides we need to set up a, a better place to keep the Ark of the Covenant. And so we're going to read that story today and kind of God's interaction around that and, and seek to apply that in our own lives um, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll start by reading verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And that night... The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So the story, it all starts when the king has a good idea. David gets this idea, right? And life is good. This is when you get your best ideas. He, he, he's home in his palace. His enemies are all under control. The Ark of the Covenant is nearby. But something seems a little bit off. His palace is built of cedar from the cedars of Lebanon, sent to him by the king. It's a beautiful place. But God's out camping in a tent. And so David has an idea. I will build a house for God. It's a good sentiment. He's reflecting on God's goodness to him, right? And he wants to do something in response. Haven't we all had that moment when we just really felt the love and grace and forgiveness of God and we just want to say thank you in some kind of tangible way? It's a moment of gratitude. We want to do something for God because he's done so much for us. 
And David has this idea and he tells Nathan the prophet about it. And Nathan, well, in the text, he even just says, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm here. And he's in a tent. Nathan says, do whatever you want. But Nathan agrees, but far too quickly. Right? Nathan said what I would have said, go for it. What a good and God-honoring idea to build him a house. Yes, makes sense. And Nathan goes home, and then God weighs in on the whole idea. Verse 4, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And what we see in our text is an example of when good ideas fall short. So many times in my life, well, not a bazillion, but lots of times in my life, I've had a great idea sitting in that room up there in my office. I've had the best idea, and I go home and I say to Angela, I've got the best idea, and she asks one little question and uncovers a perspective I had never even thought of. And I realize, oh my goodness, that would have been the worst idea in the world just because I was seeing it from my perspective. It saved me from making a fool of myself and from making a fool of our church many times. I've seen it from my perspective, but I've got to realize my perspective is limited. How many of you have ever had that experience? You ever had a good idea, great idea, and then all of a sudden, or maybe you had the good luck of going through your idea and letting it fall flat and realizing after far too late, right? David has what seems like to him a really good idea, and the prophet agrees, but the reality is far, far different. God speaks, and it brings into focus that David and Nathan are victims of a disordered sense of reality. A disordered sense of reality. Their perspective of the reality of the situation has been skewed. I'm sure you've seen these, these, these things on the internet that, that show about perspective. Like, for example, in this first one, is this a number six or is this a number nine? Right? Have you seen that where they're arguing? One sees six, one sees nine because they're looking at it from a totally different perspective. One of the ones I use in my retreats, and this is one of my favorite, one guy sees a boat. You got that one? And one guy sees land. They, they see the same thing from different angles, and it has a totally different meaning to both of them. Perspective is, is very, very powerful. It taints everything we see. I don't know if any of you noticed, but there was a vice presidential debate down south this week, right? And I watched it. Against my better judgment, I watched the vice presidential debate. And after it was over, against my even better judgment, I went on to Facebook. <laughs> and the funny thing to me was, some people said, this candidate just won. Oh, my goodness. They blew the other person away. And then other people said the exact opposite. It was like they had been watching two different debates. And I'm not going to take either side right here in front of you right now. But the reality was their perspective on who they liked as a candidate shaped how they interpreted the whole debate. Our perspective shapes us. And David, surveying all of this, he comes up with this really good idea from his perspective. But the problem is David has more, like, like all of us, David has more confidence in his own perspective than he should have. We all seem to think we know what's going on. We all seem to think our first impressions are really profound and wise. Something about human nature. But the good news is God doesn't leave David or he doesn't leave us in that limited perspective. God's going to help David see things a little more clearly. And he does some things. First, he reorders David's understanding. God reorders David's understanding. And it usually starts with a really good question. Just like when my wife questions me and I think, oh, that's a really good. That's what usually helps us reorder our understanding. 
God starts with one in, in verse 5, the last part of verse 5. Hey, David, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? That's a really good question. David, are you, is that your job? Just a question. And then he goes on this short refresher course in Jewish history for David, right? Just in case you don't remember, David, I've traveled with the Israelites in a tent all through the Exodus. Wherever they went, I went. And did I ever, out of all the leaders since that time, have I ever asked anybody, say, hey, you know, you need to upgrade my digs here a little bit. <laughs> I'm living in a tent. I'm God. You guys should take care of me. He says, I've never asked that. David, do you, do you think I need a house? When have I ever needed a house? Who have I ever asked to build me a house? You see, so often our thoughts of what God needs have more to do with us than they do with what God actually needs. David sees himself in a palace of cedar. It's a beautiful home and he would just feel better, right? Just feel better if God had something nice too. But the point God makes is, First of all, David, who are you? And second, who am I? Have I ever asked for that before? What about my story that I've lived with the people of Israel through? What about that makes you think that I want a house? It's a good question for us to answer. What about God and who he is makes us think that our perspective is true? One of the things that drives me crazy I'm going to wade into this carefully. Is people who are just sure that if this thing happens or that thing happens, that the church will never recover. If this happens, it's the end. What about God's story says that I need to worry about the future of the church? Isn't it him building his church? He seems to have done okay. He's had... The church has had dark times, but God's kind of kept it going all along the way. You know, we get so wrapped up and the things we think need to happen. We need to think, what is it about God that, that makes me feel that way? What about the history of God has ever shown him to go down in defeat? Nothing has ever shown that. When has God's success depended upon our accomplishments? And us being good at what we do, when has that ever been a case? Now, I'm not saying, so just don't do anything. But I'm saying, don't take the full responsibility for God's success on your shoulders. David needs a reoriented understanding of who God is and of who he is. So once God's helped David see who God is, God reorients David's own story. I want to read verses 8 to 11 again out loud. And I want you to listen closely as I read, and I want you to mentally highlight everything that David does and everything that God does in verses 8 to 11. Oh, this, this Bible has the smallest numbers. I'm getting old. <laughs> now then, now think, what did David do and what did God do? God says, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the great men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since time, the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. How much did David have to do in that? Really, nothing. God did every single thing. See, God's reorienting 
the story of David's life to say, look, David, when have you been the prime mover and shaker in your life? I've been doing this all along. God reminds him that everything that's happened in his life has been God's doing. David doesn't need to provide a place for God. God is providing a place for David and for the people of Israel. It's such an important clarification. You know, we talked last week about the idolatry of our own image and how we become the central player of our story. We become the most important link in the story. We, we tend to think things revolve around us and they depend upon us. It all becomes about us and what we do, what we do for God, what we do for our family, what we do for others. One of the biggest challenges as a basketball coach, you knew it was coming, right? Basketball season's just around the corner. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is when you have a really good player that is very good to, to help them not just see the team oriented around them, but to see them as part of the team. Because what happens when they take the whole responsibility on themselves, guess what? The other team only really has to stop one person. And if they can realize that, that there's a whole team here, if they can reorient their story around the team instead of around themselves, and God is reorienting David's story around God instead of around David. David says, here I am living in a palace of cedar and the ark of God remains in the tent. I should do something about that. And God says, no, not really your job, David, to take care of me. I appreciate the sentiment, but you've kind of got your story off kilter a bit. I'm the one who takes care of those things. I've been taking care of you all along. And if anything changes, David, I'll let you know. And then God shifts from the past, I love this, to the future, as God reclarifies David's vision. Now, there's a huge amount of irony in verses 11 to 17. You have to catch that. Remember what David wants to do. He wants to build a house for God. And verse 11, the Lord himself declares to you that the Lord himself, in case you're wondering, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David's vision for the future was to build God a house. <laughs> and God says, David, I'm building your house. And I'm thinking bigger than a than a cedar thing. You're limited, David. Even in the vision, he says, you're going to die. You're going to be buried. You know, it's going to be over. But guess what? Your kingdom's going to pass on to your son. Now, that was a big deal for kings in that day. It didn't happen all the time. Saul definitely didn't have that kind of fortune. So God says, you're going to die, but I'm going to pass it on to your son. But, and your son's going to build that temple. We'll, we'll worry about that when it's time. He says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. What a blessing to know that for your kids... That's God's relationship with him. But then he says, but he'll mess up. And I'll have to chastise him. I'll have to bring him back around. But I will never stop loving him. And then he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God re-clarifies David's vision from a building project next door to, to the whole future. And, and even David, even the people writing at this point don't quite get what it means that his throne will be established forever. The prophets pick that up, right? And they're talking about the, the coming Messiah that's going to establish the throne of David. Once again, there's three things here that God's communicating. Number one, I don't need your help, David. I don't need your help. Number two, I'm the one who's been helping you all along. And number three, I'm the one who fully understands the promises that I make to you. They're bigger than you can even fathom. I'm, you think I'm talking about your kingdom. I'm thinking way bigger than that. And what do we see on David's part? Pick it up in verse 18. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? See, he's got it. He got it. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You've established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. And then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. You see, David's prayer comes from a totally different place. Because reordered reality always leads to humble gratitude. When you begin to see the picture as it really is, it should lead you to humble gratitude. David's first question echoes the question God asks. God asks, who are you? And David says, you're right, God, who am I? Who am I? He's got a reordered perspective. And he says, who am I and who's my family that you have brought us this far? He's got a reoriented story. It's God, you've brought us to here. You're the one that's led us to here. And as if this were not enough, you've given me promises about the future. He's got a reclarified vision. God's changed his whole perspective through this interaction. He's grasped the bigger picture and all he can do is be humble and thankful, which is very fitting considering it's Thanksgiving weekend that we, we think about that. This idea of humble Gratitude. Now, I, I, I feel like I'm ahead of all of you on this because I have had a, a huge impact in my life. Not that I'm more humbly gratitude, gracious or, or thankful, but that I've had an incredible example. There's a picture coming up of my dad. And, and my dad was one of the most humble and thankful people I ever met. When he was a kid, very, very young, his dad, his mom was really sick, kind of bedridden. And his dad packed up and left he and his sisters and brothers all alone, went, moved, to, moved away. They never heard from him ever again. And several years after that, um, the mom died and my dad's sisters kind of raised him from his preteen and early teen years, took care of him. And my dad, he didn't have a lot of um, things instilled in him by his parents. And, and he was so shy one of my aunts tells the story that they were at the store one time at the little county general store or whatever. And a man just walked up to him and asked him how he was doing. And he burst out crying. He burst out into tears because he was so shy. And, and yet he, he worked and he, he did the best he could. And, and, and as, as he went through life, he married a great wife and he had four amazing children. Like amazing, <laughs> right? Just unbelievable children. But at, 
as I grew up and as I was in my teen years, all I knew about my dad was he, he was humble. He knew that he had done nothing to get him where he was. And he was thankful. He used to say to my, to my mom, he used to say, well, the kids turned out pretty good in spite of us. But he knew every single thing he had. And he, he told me that. He said, everything you have, Jeff, is a gift from God. It's nothing. It's, you never deserve anything, but God's giving you so much. That's, that's an example that da- David had some things to learn, even though it all started with this good thought. He, he had this really good idea, but God used that to reorient his perspective, to lead him to a place of humble gratitude. So how do we, looking at this text, how do we evaluate our own good thoughts? When you have a good idea, how do we make sure that we're seeing it from a larger perspective? You know, we always think we're right until we're wrong. Isn't that true? We always think we're right until we're wrong. None of us choose to be wrong because we think, I really want to choose the wrong thing. We think we're right. So when it comes to our understanding of reality and the good that we want to do in the world, how can we know it's what God wants and not what we want? There's a proverb, Proverbs 8, 17. The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. So how do you know when you have an idea that it's a good idea? I'll give you three questions to kind of think about as you think around this idea. The first one is this. Who is taking care of who? Who's taking care of who? In your picture of reality, are you feeling the responsibility to make God look good or to work for you or to make things happen? Are you afraid you'll let God down if you make a mistake? If people find out about that area of your life that you struggle in, are you taking care of God or is he taking care of you? When we take on the role of being the one caring for ourselves or even worse, taking care of God, it's more than we're equipped for. I was looking through the pictures of my dad, and I've, I've told you this story about 10 times. I'm going to tell you the story again, but this is a ride at Six Flags over Georgia. It, it's a metal ball that goes up high in a crane, and I was terrified, and my dad, oh, I'm telling you the story again, aren't I? My dad said, uh, would I take you anywhere you're afraid of? Now, when you look at that picture, who's that cute little kid in the blue shirt? Who, that's me, right? Who's taking care of who in this picture? My dad's taking care of me, Right? And, and now I get off that picture because that, that much beauty you guys cannot handle for a long time, right? But I, I want you to realize that one of the things is when you're taking care of God or when you're taking care of yourself, you feel the tension and the pressure. But when it's the other way around, when God's taking care of you, there's great freedom in that. There's great peace in that. To feel free on that ride, I had to trust that I was not the one in charge. I was not the one taking care of me. Acts 17, I've been reading this this message of Paul again in Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God does not need us to carry him. God does not need us to protect him, to make sure that he's successful. Now, the beautiful thing is he invites us to be a part of it. But you can tell right away, if you're feeling anxious and weighed down and stressed about what has to happen for the church or your Christian life to be successful, you're taking the wrong, you're taking too much responsibility. It doesn't mean we're passive and we don't do anything. It just means we don't have, there's a freedom in what we do because we know that we don't carry the lion's share of the responsibility. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Don't get sucked into that spiral that 
that the news or Facebook will feed where you just feel like the whole world, what am I going to do? Well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to let God carry you through this. And when he has something for you to do, just like he did for today, he'll make it clear to you. And it's not overt when we, when we shift gears, when we jump into the driver's seat. We don't really know. It. It's very subtle, our tendency to take care of God or to take care of ourselves. So we have to, to be open. And it, it, it's this perspective that skews our thinking on everything else. All of a sudden, the responsibility becomes ours. So the first question, who's taking care of who? The second question, do we see our story from the larger frame? David's story was from his limited perspective. He's become king. I've got a palace. I've got my capital city now. I've got the upper hand on the Philistines and my enemies. Time to make a house for God. That's his picture. And God sees his story from a way larger frame. David, I called you back when you were a shepherd. I called you. I'm the one that got you to the point where you're king. I've chosen you. I've established you. I've given you this city for your capital city. I've, I've subdued your enemies. And not only that, David, but I'm going to use you and your descendants to change the world forever. See that bigger perspective? You know, as we think of the good we want to do, who's taking care of who in that? And, and are we seeing things from the bigger viewpoint? Psalm 139, David writes, When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Can you rest in the fact that God is, is, is directing your story? Can you get that bigger perspective that he formed you, he's guided you to where you are, and he will, he will carry you on from here? And trust that where you are right now, the relationships that you're involved in, the friendships that you have, the place that you live, it's all a part of this bigger story. Again, from Acts 17, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this. He put you here so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. See, this helps us to weather the difficult times if we can trust that there's a bigger story going on that God has brought us to right here, that he's leading us on from here. There will be hundreds of years after this where the promise of David's throne seemed like a pipe dream, like it was not going to happen. Until Jesus came and established a whole different kind of throne, a whole different kind of kingdom that, that, believe it or not, from the time of the resurrection has already changed reality. That's important. You've got to get that. I'm reading a book, which I really like so far, Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. Isn't that something you want to read? Um, by Lee Camp. And I'm only a few pages into it, but my brother recommended it to me, and he, he's a good recommender. But Lee Camp talks about this throne of David that Jesus is on, this kingdom of God. And he uses this term, it's, we have to live in a proleptic stance. Proleptic is an English term uh, for, for the sentence that is about the future and is so true about the future that you speak as if it's already come true. And he gives the example, which I've done a million times. You're getting ready to go out to, you got somebody waiting in the house and you're going to go downtown or whatever. And you, as you're standing at the door of your house, you yell back to that person, I'm in the car. Right? I'm in the car. And then you go out and get in the car. Right? That's a proleptic phrase. You're not in the car when you say that. But you are so sure that you're going to be in the car that you say it as if it's already true. 
to hurry up whoever's coming behind you, right? I'm in the car. Well, the kingdom of God, we as a church, and he makes a case in this book, we need to live proleptically. <laughs> Let me just, oh, yeah, I've got time, don't I? Right? Oh, we got a wedding coming up, right? We got time for this. Christian discipleship calls us to a proleptic stance in which we embody and bear witness to the world that is coming. The coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth and we practice suffering love and we right the wrongs now. Do you see that? that? That's one of the things that's important. Yes, we want to do these good things, but we've got to realize this is all a part of the bigger story. The reason we can do the good things now is not because they're going to be successful. Who knows if you right wrongs and, and love suffering? Who knows if it's going to look good right now in this narrow frame? But if you can look at the big frame, it's already done. And we need to live proleptically. We need to give and serve and love because that's already true. We're so convinced of the truth of the kingdom that we live that way now. Which leads us to this third question. If you want to know if you're positioning yourself correctly in that larger scope of God's reality, the question is, are our lives marked by humble gratitude? Not just for this weekend. I'm sure at some point in this three or four day stretch, you're going to sit down with somebody and tell the things you're thankful for. That's great. It's lovely to do that. Please do. But is your life marked by humble gratitude? I did a graveside service for Pat Kroll. Many of you knew her. She was a longtime member of our church. And it was so moving for me because her three children talked about her humility and her thankfulness and her wisdom. They, they didn't plan. They just spoke off the cuff. But they all three described her the same way. She lived a life of humble gratitude because she trusted. She knew the bigger story. 1 Thessalonians 5, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, to do it in all circumstances, you have to have that bigger perspective. You have to know who's taking care of you. But if you know who's taking care of you, and if you have that bigger picture, then gratitude flows out of that. That's why David's prayer was the way David's prayer was. He got that, that glimpse of this bigger thing and who was in charge. Another proverb, God mocks proud mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, when David had his vision clarified, when he had his perspective broadened, he, he humbly said, thank you. And the opposite's true. The corollary, I don't know if it's corollary or not. I don't know if I'm using that word right. Somebody can write me an email and tell me if I am. But if you're humble and thankful, you are living that way, but, but here's the, other, the opposite side. If you don't find that humility and gratitude are a natural response in your life, maybe that's why. Maybe it's because you're not. You're trying to take care of too much, or maybe you've lost the bigger picture. Maybe that's the reason you struggle with humility and gratitude is because you feel the responsibility and you limited the story. And maybe as you go into Thanksgiving weekend, your prayer should be to see reality clearly. To know who's taking care of you. And see, if, I, I really believe once, once you have that picture, once you realize it's not your responsibility to carry the lion's share of what God is doing, it's your responsibility to respond to him when he calls you. 
Once you realize that he's taking care of you and you realize that he's been taking care of you from a long time before and he will carry on what you're doing a long time after, I think if you live that way, actually, you'll begin to see gratitude and humility flow out of your life without even trying. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the blessings that you give us. We're thankful that we don't have to carry the weight. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Help us to to care about what happens and to, to follow you and to respond to you, but to realize that this world is yours, that you are, how many times did David say sovereign Lord in his prayer? Because he knew you were the one that's leading. You're the one that's driving the boat here. You're the one that's guiding history to its end. And help us to live proleptically. Help us to live as, as it's true right now, to be a light for your kingdom. And God, as we enter in this time of thanksgiving, we do want to be thankful. You have led us to this point. You are carrying us now, some of us in very difficult situations. Please help us to be humbly thankful for what you have done and trusting that you will finish what you started. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. We are standing and singing a song now. To use the prolecta, prolecta. I don't even know what that is. Leptic song. <laughs> Here's the words of Paul. I'm going to leave you with this. It's great for Thanksgiving weekend, great for a precursor to a wedding. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. People say all the time, what's God's will for my life? Well, right there it is. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.